the most important thing that I've learned is as comfortable as I can be with technology and as quickly as I may see how technology can be applied in a way that can help people, that does not necessarily translate into how everybody else will experience technology. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. David right here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And today I am lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Alistair Erskine. Alistair, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for inviting me to share a little bit my story and where we're going. Yeah, absolutely. Long time in the making, so I'm pretty psyched. Alistair, for those of our listeners who may not know, can you just tell everybody a little bit about your current role? Yes, I'm the Chief Information and Digital Officer at Emory Healthcare and the Vice President for Digital Health at Emory University. And I'm an internal medicine and pediatric physician. Wow. Well, I'm really excited to learn more about what you guys are up to at Emory. I know you were just awarded at Epic UGM and, you know, you have a lot of exciting stuff going on. But first and foremost, we like to start our episode with just one piece of actionable advice you may look to leave everyone with today. Don't think too much, just do and learn from it. I think it's at the root of innovation, really. So often when we encounter health systems, the biggest enemy to progress is their own inertia. So Alistair, let's talk a little bit about, you know, where that insight came from. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started out? I mean, obviously you're an MD, right? And now you're the chief digital and information officer of a really large health system. So where did you start in your journey and kind of how did you get to where you are today? Yeah. So I think probably it's worthwhile stating the fact that I grew up in Europe. So I grew up speaking French and Spanish and immigrated to the States to go to university in Virginia. And so was trying to bridge two very different types of cultures, even though they're Western cultures, but there's some important nuances between the two cultures. And so when I went into medical school and then I picked a residency, 
I noticed that I was kind of doing a bit the same thing, the pediatrics and internal medicine to sort of bridge the young kid, you know, and the elderly and try to make sure I understood the full spectrum of care. And while I was practicing as a hospitalist, pediatric hospitalist in one hospital, internal medicine hospitalist in an academic medical center in the same city in Richmond, Virginia, I noticed that the tools that I was using were just not intuitive. They just didn't fit a clinical workflow. And so you scratch your head and you can wonder why that is. And at one point, I'm writing a note on the neurological floor and I see the desk clerk who pulls the recycle bin next to the copier and takes what appears to be reams of paper directly from the copier into the recycle bin. And so, you know, I piqued my curiosity, what's going on there? So I asked her, well, you know, what are you doing? And she said, listen, it's such a pain. I do this every shift. I have to refill paper in the copier and sometimes the thing runs out of ink. Anyway, I don't know. Nobody ever reads these things, but they just kind of come off the copier and they go into the recycle bin. So, oh, that's interesting. Let me just find out more about that. I did a back of the envelope calculation, found out this was happening on every single floor, three times a day. It was basically millions of dollars in paper and ink that we were spending. So I thought, oh, well, if nobody reads these and they're coming out every single you know, day, then somebody doesn't know that nobody's reading them and we could save a million bucks. So I go to my first informatics IT committee and proudly stand up uh, as an invited guest and say, I have a way to solve a million dollars. We can just turn off all these reports that nobody ever reads. At which point somebody looks at me and says, are you crazy? We would kill patients if we ever did that. And I thought, oh, I'm hooked. Because quickly I understood the gap between what happens on the front line in clinical care and what happens in a conversation that occurs at a table with a bunch of experts that are trying to do their best to configure a system. And the gap was somebody that understood what's actually going on. So I volunteered, you know, I got involved that way. And the more I got into it, the more I realized that this gap was really a chasm. And it had a lot to do with the fact that busy clinicians don't have time to hang around folks that are fiddling around with computers. And so that drew me even further into it and took on an official role as a CMIO in 2005 at Virginia Commonwealth University which was an inaugural role back then. They weren't that, in fact, the way to get the job at the time was I found out from a friend of mine who gave me a job description. I handed that to my chief medical officer and he said, sounds great. And that was about it. That was about as much as it took at the time. Because again, it wasn't a very common thing. And so subsequent to that, it was all about taking the system that was still on paper. And this is back in the days before, you know, everything was digitized and converting that healthcare system from paper-based systems and so forth to electronic systems. And I had to build something called the Office of Clinical Transformation, which was a way of taking nurses and physicians out of their everyday clinical workflow and putting them into an environment where they could help configure orders and documentation and decision support roles and analytics with the IT team and the project managers and the trainers as a way to be able to better tune the system. And that worked out really well. And so then I found that this change transformation and digitization and kind of better configuration of systems really translated not only in the clinical care environment, but also in the research environment, where each researcher is their own CEO, 
but they have digital needs and those digital needs need to be satisfied with all kinds of digital tools. And unless there's a strategy and an approach, it becomes quickly chaotic. And so there are ways to be able to do that in an intelligent way. And because I spoke several languages, I started consulting in, in Europe and in the Middle East. And that's where I ended up taking on a role in Qatar in the Middle East, building a healthcare system from scratch. This was implemented in Cerner in a brand new hospital that was a women and children hospital. And it was part of a dream that Sheikha Moza had, who was a part of the ruling family in Qatar, that she was tired of having hospitals built only for men. And so she said she was going to buy a hospital and build it for women and kids so they didn't have to travel all over the world to go get care. Fascinating project. I was there for about three years and then ultimately came back to the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, where I became the chief health information officer for Geisinger Health. And the clever thing about Geisinger is it really survives based on its innovation because it's in kind of central Pennsylvania and it's half a health plan and half of a clinical enterprise. So I learned right. a lot about value-based care. I learned a lot about innovating in the middle, which is when somebody is a member and a patient and be able to do clever things that you can't normally do if you don't have that premium aspect or the patient does. And so did that for several years. While I was at Geising, went to MIT to do an executive MBA program for a couple of years. So I'd fly backwards and forth between Pennsylvania and Boston every other week. And eventually got recruited to Boston at Mass General Brigham and was there for another five years. And at Mass General, really the major piece was scale and the research community. Mass General Brigham does about $2.4 billion worth of research and uses its electronic health record as a research tool to you know, research participants and investigators and clinical trials were all embedded into Epic. And we set up some data analytics systems there as well to be able to serve the needs of the clinical operations and the research folks. And then after, again, sort of five years there, I stumbled upon Emory Healthcare that had just implemented Epic Sutanuts and one of the largest kind of full suite Epic implementations Epic had ever done. And they had gone live, it had been six months, they were looking for an information and digital officer. And so I showed up and with some experience and excited to see a fresh copy of Epic. And that's going to end up there. Well, that's quite a journey. I've always been interested in consulting in the Middle East because I've had a few people reach out to me and most recently Saudi Arabia. And I've always kind of vacillated as to whether or not that was something I wanted to do. But DI, we are spreading into Europe and APAC. So it's interesting. I want to say, I like how you referred to the IT individuals in your first stint. You know, that was very PC, but I appreciate doctors, nurses, clinicians experience so much. Cause like you said, you're on the front lines, right? Me as an IT and digital expert, but someone who does not have that clinical experience, if I'm forming the strategy that's going to impact that clinician or that patient experience, and I'm not bringing that to the table, what am I doing? You know, we actually, at our last conference, we made a, a point to have a panel of C-level executives who are driving digital strategy, but we're also MDs as well as a nursing panel because CNIOs, I feel like that's an even newer role and not even a role for some organizations, but I think it's crucial. Nurses are with the patient all day 
right? So to not incorporate their experience, I think is also a big mistake that I see happen sometimes, but I digress. I also, as one of the, like a little piece of advice that Chani Cordero gave at one of the panels we did was just doing rounds. Like, so you're an IT executive, you're a CIO. Are you going around your facilities and kind of, all right, so you're not treating the patient, but are you at least going out there and kind of seeing what's what? And I was like, wow, I really like that too. So like many of my colleagues, I do that twice a week, every Monday and Friday. But I was encouraged the rest of my team to come along with me, two or three people that could come around with me. And universally, they don't for whatever hmm. reason. So, and then I decided, well, what if I had them stream the experience? So I had my assistant come with me with an iPhone. It was streamed, so it wasn't recorded. And, you know, anybody who didn't want to be part of the streaming experience could always call out and say, I don't want to be part of this. And anytime a patient was even possible to be in view, the iPhone was pointing to the ground to kind of avoid any of that. But I ended up with 250 people coming with me when I round my whole team. And so it's engineers, analysts, you know, project managers, directors, the whole gamut. And I think what's so great about that is even during the round in time, we'll be in the emergency department and the folks that configure the emergency department system will chime in and be like, well, hang on a second. I can fix that right now if you want. I'll just make this configuration change. Or they'll chime in and say, actually, we are about to turn XYZ feature on and you'll see that in a couple of weeks. So there's this lovely interaction that occurs. But the most important thing is, especially when people are remote and they don't have a chance to visit the hospital as much, is at least twice a week, they have an opportunity to see what's going on in the pharmacy, in the ICU, you know, in the pediatric unit, wherever, maybe any nook and cranny of the organization. And I just booked them months and ahead of time on my calendar. It's every Monday and Friday from 8 to 10. And I always learn something useful from that. And I just find it fascinating to learn about how somebody has adapted a system that's designed to do one thing into something else because that's what's needed. And then, you know, you can learn a lot about how to tweak things that way. And plus, it gives you an opportunity to sit down with leadership and get to know them, and understand what's their driving incentive and what they're trying to accomplish. And you just can provide a better tool that way. And as a pediatrician and internist, I know a lot about pediatrics and internal medicine, but maybe not as much about surgery and OBGYN and bariatrics and whatever else it may be. And so it gives me an opportunity to learn more about those areas. And I think that's really what practicing clinical informatics is all about. It's getting out of your own specialty and learning about all specialties and how technology, automation, AI can actually serve them. When we're approaching digital strategy for a health system, meeting with the leaders of every specialty, right? Spending time with them, making them feel heard, A, because it's important to incorporate in the strategy and B, from an organizational change management standpoint, you know, ultimately we need them enrolled in what we're doing, but we found that's absolutely crucial in order to have a successful project. And I love the streaming. That's so cool. That's really neat. Alistair, what would you say is one of the most important things that you've learned over the course of this journey you just described personally or professionally? And what was life like before learning it and after learning it? I think that the most important thing that I've learned is 
as comfortable as I can be with technology and as quickly as I may see how technology can be applied in a way that can help people, that does not necessarily translate into how everybody else will experience technology because everybody is along the continuum. So when selecting folks to be able to advise, I'm careful not to select only the tech savvy end users, but also to include those who are not so tech savvy. They universally come back to me and be like, you know, I don't know a lot about this IT stuff. And I say, exactly, because you're not alone. And we're not just trying to transform the savvy tech. They'll transform themselves. In fact, we want to know what works for those that are identified as being tech savvy. So I think you don't want to get too far ahead of clinical operations when it comes to the deployment of technology. You want to make sure that there is a proper readiness assessment. You know, is the unit, is the clinic ready to absorb this kind of a change? Or are there other things that need to occur first? Or are the others that are better suited to absorb the change? And we'll come back to this clinic later. So what I've learned to do since then is let the diffusion of innovation occur more opportunistically than in a prescribed way. So you spread some technology that you're trying to deploy initially, and you find out where it's taken off, and then you double down there, get some momentum there, and then you find others that start to get excited about seeing their colleagues kind of using it, and you move over. You can't always do that, but it's definitely valuable when you can, because then you're not pushing up, you know, a Sisyphean effort to try to get a department that doesn't want to go forward. Instead, you're kind of finding the coalition of the willing on their own and using that momentum you gain to be able to recruit others. Yeah, great practical advice. And I would agree wholeheartedly. If you can get those champions, it makes life a lot easier. And ultimately, you're going to need to figure out a way to get to that satisfied customer one way or another or else, right? <laughs> Speaking of which, Alistair, is there a time that sticks out in your mind that, you know, you were challenged or that you had to overcome a failure or something of that nature, but you ultimately took away a lesson or just an insight that you carry with you today? Yeah, many of those. And conveniently, I'm full of scars from previous implementations. One in particular that comes to mind is CEO and myself were really interested in trying to improve the patient experience. This is way before it was cool to try to go after the patient experience, but, and just, we wanted to bring kind of a commercial non-healthcare, you know, approach to healthcare, especially when it comes to selecting a doctor. And so we found a company. And I won't name the company because the outcome wasn't good, but we found a company and we stuck it on top of our scheduling system. And the nice thing about what the company offered for consumers is the ability to write something in English and it would translate it into kind of the medical jargon. So instead of having to say OBGYN, you could say gyno. And then that would find the right doctors, OBGYN doctors. And it would list those physicians by criteria that you would choose, but most important criteria was availability. So those doctors who are available would show up first, and the ones that you say, I want to see a man or a woman, or I want to see a 
you know, somebody who speaks Russian or whatever, maybe those were secondary issues, making the case that availability is the most important thing. And then everything else that you're looking for, but also to be able to translate what your symptoms are, what your needs are into something in terms of what kind of doctor you need to go see. So the whole thing seemed like a really good idea, but the company was fairly new, not completely new, not a complete startup. It had been well-established, but it was still private. And when we started deploying this, we realized very quickly we were the first enterprise customer because until then it was sort of one or two, you know, doctors in an office and the technology just didn't scale. There was no kind of staging area. So when changes were made, they were made everywhere for the entire country, not just for the hospital. And when asking the question, well, how does it translate from this to a cardiologist when you put this in? The answer was, well, we don't really know. It's kind of a bit of a black box, but it seems to work pretty well. And then when you went to look for a doctor, they would give you a set of doctors. You go to the second page, they give you another set of doctors. You go back to the first page, and instead of showing you the original set of doctors you saw, it give you a different set of doctors. So you know how sometimes you go looking for something, you come back, you say, oh, I want to go to that one after all. Mm-hmm. You couldn't find that one. So we had all kinds of problems and ultimately end up after about a year or two pulling that whole thing out which was an effort in and of itself, and realizing that company couldn't scale. So what that taught me is you really do have to speak to people. I mean, it's good to be at the cutting edge, but not so much at the bleeding edge. So it's nice to be able to talk to a few people who are smaller, who have tried something out, and who can say, yes, this actually does work, and here are some of the problems you're going to run into. But that's where those reference calls are really useful, and more so than the PowerPoint slides that show up in a meeting. I've seen some really clever PowerPoint slides or some fairly clumsy software, some of which was Vapor. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, there's even some enterprise platforms today that I won't get into that, you know, promise the world via PowerPoint and then having trouble delivering in healthcare in particular. But I can think of a few myself. But I agree. And I think one of the things, too, that I thank God for these experiences, conversations like this and conversations that we disruptive innovators get to have with executives like yourself, because when we come into, you know, meet with someone, because the vendor is only going to give you or probably is only going to give you the good reference, right? So oftentimes we'll hear kind of the nitty gritty of cases with vendors that don't go so well. And maybe it's not a reason to even not go with them necessarily. It's just, this is what happened. I mean, I'll say that when I see a lot of these implementations with Gartner, Magic Quadrant leading software vendors, a lot of the time what we see is the failure of the project is rooted in either the unpreparedness of the health system or health systems just like taking what they're doing on a given platform and trying to plug in a new technology and just making it work, right? Today, I find more than ever, we need to kind of throw it up against the wall before we're looking at what technology we're going to use and really stretch it out, really say, all right, where are our bottlenecks? What are we trying to solve for here versus, okay, here's a new technology that's just going to solve all the problems, you know? In fact, that's now officially called phase zero. So Projects have phase one, two, and three different phases of things. And and so we'll call phase zero is specifically when you have not introduced a new technology yet and you're fixing workflows and 
fixing processes and so forth and people and getting them prepared and so forth before you even hit phase one. And phase zero are incredibly useful in preparation, especially for things like electronic resource planning, you know, ERP systems that you're deploying at organization. People are like, oh, the technology is going to save the day. And to your point, it doesn't because you have to do the hard work of standardize. And sometimes people use technology as a way to standardize, as a forcing function. And that works okay. People right. won't be thrilled with the outcome, but it is a forcing function. But even then, you oftentimes end up booking into that new technology, end up customizing it back to the old processes, which defeats the purpose and the value of some of the things that the new technology can bring. And so doing a phase zero is a great way to sort of make sure that you stop thinking about what's coming and fix what you have in preparation for that. Is that a Dr. Erskine special or is that an MIT <laughs> reference? No, I learned that from a, you know, from a few of the consultants out there that use the term phase zero. And I think it's a clever way of making the point that there's something you need to do before phase one. Yeah, I love it. I'm going to tactfully <laughs> steal that. So Alistair, I want to get into the work that you're doing at Emory now. Before we do, we always just like to ask favorite book or literary piece that you have read recently or all time, uh, your choice. I really like Borges. He's this Argentinian writer that writes a lot of existential novels, you know, tends to structure his story like a labyrinth. So you can kind of come in one door, come in another door, just in the narrative. So the thing that's fun about Borges, I mean, he's no longer living, but is that you can read the stories in Spanish, which kind of makes it fun too. But in terms of the book, oh, it's hard to tell. Can we just stick with the author? Absolutely. I mean, I am going to look him up because my daughter, I, I speak Spanglish. I, I would say I can understand like 60 to 70% of Spanish, depending on the dialect. But my daughter's in Spanish immersion. So we want to start speaking it more. So good recommendation for me, for sure. So anyway, Alistair, so you're the chief digital and information officer at Emory Health. Talk to us a little bit about your vision for your department as it's derived from the overall mission of Emory Health and maybe some of the initiatives that roll up to that. So our overall mission, which is not uh, that different than any other healthcare organization is to improve lives and give people hope, you know, through, through healthier lives. And I think my department's role fundamentally is teaching every member of the organization, not just the folks within my department, but every member of the organization, how they can use software and hardware and technology to carry out that mission easier. So whether you're somebody who is using Excel and would learn how to use Microsoft tools better, if you're somebody who's doing, you know, some manual work and you can learn how to write uh, a digital bot that can replace that work so you can use your skills for customer service or for solving problems and so forth, rather than doing remedial work. Or if you are somebody who is taking care of a complex patient and you have nudges coming from the system to help remind you of the next best thing to be able to do for that particular patient. I think the corpus of medicine is so enormous that no one person can really hold the keys to every single thing that can be known about someone. And you just need help with the ever-changing laws 
and the ever-changing body of knowledge to be able to do the best thing we can do. And everybody can be an expert these days and technology can help that. So that's kind of the core principle. Now, the way to arrive to that principle is to think past technology to what are the experiences that I'm trying to change. So we break it down into three key experiences, patient, care team, and researcher. And those three experiences, whether it's technology, not technology, what's that overall experience that somebody should have when they walk into a hospital and experience healthcare, or they walk into a clinic and they're trying to deliver healthcare, or they're wading their way through the data and they're trying to discover the next breakthrough. And so, and those three experiences are supported by three fundamental pillars, which includes the financial health of the organization, no money, no mission, especially for not-for-profit, the, a unified data ecosystem where we can get the insights and the data that you need that kind of fuels a lot of the AI and so forth, and then a platform-based infrastructure. So a few core vendors where we reap the benefits of most of that functionality and we put in you know, niche vendors and where we absolutely have to, we'll build our own software because nothing else exists, but really trying to put as much as possible into these core vendors that we develop a very deep relationship with to make sure that we can have align our missions and so forth. So on the patient experience side, what we're doing this year is we're personalizing the portal from what is Epic MyChart to something that's more customized to Emory. So add in things like Physician Finder, Wayfind in, Virtual Urgent Care, and the ability to do medical interpretation for patients that don't speak English. Mm. And in fact, doing a lot of things to be able to improve folks that have limited English proficiency in terms of the documents they get. So the notes that they have written by their providers to automatically translate them into their language of choice and to use kind of the artifacts and the systems that surround them to be in the language of choice. That's a huge barrier to overcome for when you don't speak English. And I always try to think of myself as being in a place where, you know, everything is written in Chinese and how hard it would be for me to get around and kind of try to empathize with what they must feel like. And having lived in the Middle East where everything was in Arabic, I can say I have a sense. The third thing we're doing this year for the patient experience is trying to develop better relationships with patients after they leave the clinic and the hospital. So this idea of calling them, you know, within a week and making sure they're okay or a CRM or consumer relationship management tool that kind of can put them on campaigns depending upon the registries that they're on and just ways to kind of stay connected with them, especially for patients with chronic conditions or that need to come back and see us. And then there are other things we're doing in terms of simplifying the intake process where you don't have a clipboard, but you have an iPad, you know, answering the same question over and over again. Like how many times do you fill out your name on a clipboard when they already know who you are? And then trying to optimize virtual services so you can distribute that care beyond the physical boundaries that we have. And then trying to put every transaction online. So online scheduling, online payment, online, you know, get your record, online consultation, et cetera. And then the final thing we're going to do this year is a generative AI chatbot that helps stay connected to the page 24 Saturday. You can wake up at three o'clock in the morning and start interacting with something that feels like it's speaking in, the, in your language of choice, but then connects you and hands you off to the right, either representative or the right person in the system during business hours as necessary. So those are examples of the way we're thinking about the patient experience, but we also 
worry about the care team experience and care team. I, I don't mean just doctor. I definitely mean the entire care team, even if it's, you know, the pharmacist, the nurse, the person that brings you food while you're hospitalized or the person that's helping you out with your financial management. Anything that touches a patient is in the care team. Because we know a good care team experience results in a good patient experience. If right. the care team is overwhelmed, frustrated, you know, experiencing moral injury, they're not going to generate a great patient experience. So some of it is, given the nursing shortage, ways to be able to mitigate that. So virtual sitter program, virtual nursing program, where a nurse is able to do an intake or do a discharge or help a patient with education when the nurse is actually on the unit, is running around administering the meds and taking care of patients physically. Also completing the biomedical device interface and of all IV pumps and all physiologic monitors and initiating a process of schedule optimization with a tool called UKG Dimensions, which basically allows a nurse manager to properly identify who the next best nurse is to put on the schedule without necessarily drawing from, you know, premium labor. Probably the most excited thing I am about bringing to the care team this year is something called ambient listening. And ambient listening has really been a game changer. We have 307 doctors on it now across 15 oh. different subspecialties. And this is where, you know, you sit down, you have a dialogue with a patient, you're recording that session. At the end of the session, you hit stop on your iPhone. And within about one or two minutes, that gets converted into your clinical note, which ends up in Epic in the right section of the chart and cuts down by 50% the amount of time you normally have to take to document. And so the doctor still looks at the note, make sure it's accurate. The tool itself, which is a bridge, has some clever ways to kind of float along several different large language models and identify which one is hallucinating, if there ever is, and engineers that out based on all the other ones that are saying, you know, the answer is A and this one says B, probably the one that's saying B is wrong. So oh, it, wow. it has a way of kind of engineering out hallucinations, but it still expect and see that the docs are actually reviewing that note to make sure that it's accurate. Some components of the note are made into discrete text, which means the medications and the problems and the diagnosis are made into discrete, which means that they could then ultimately fill into the problem list or into the medication list and so forth. And if you click on the discrete text, it reads back to you the portion of the recording that supported that discrete text, which makes it much wow. more transparent. So there are all kinds of benefits that you get more accurate code in. The patient likes the fact that the doctor is looking them in the eyes instead of looking at the screen, you know, paying attention to them. It's much faster to document because it's a lot faster to document. So the final note gets posted a lot sooner for everybody else to be able to see. I mean, there's countless benefits to this technology. Typically, the real bear usually is how expensive it is. And it's usually priced by doctor. And we were able to negotiate uh, an enterprise-wide license. So kind of all you can eat for any user, doctor, nurse, social worker, anything. And that's, again, this concept where I really wanted the innovation to find the next best use case rather than premeditating that and forcing that onto one versus Yeah, So there's some specialties I wouldn't have picked out, like palliative care. And the interesting thing about palliative care and ambient listening is that, you know, palliative care doctors don't enjoy reliving the sad story when they have to recall the note. So for them, it was a real relief to have something that records everything and summarizes it for you so they don't have to like try to recall the entire story. 
which I had, yeah. I would have never thought of if I was thinking about it. But then when I think about it, it just makes sense. So that's the, the you know kind of care team experiencing. Of course, we're doing things to unburden providers, long language models to be able to classify the note, automated responses from the in-basket message that are generated by the computer to send to the patient or be modified. So just again, cutting time down whenever possible and ways to connect to the rest of the community of doctors to make it easy for them to refer and to order certain tests. We also use a series of AI tools to interpret radiology results and pathology results. So the computer does that before the radiologist has a chance to do it so that if something is detected as being positive, like the patient has a stroke, that test goes to the very top of the reading list. So that's the next test the radiologist reads. So there's no delay in how long it takes for the radiologist to read that. So that's a very clever way to avoid a scenario where you get a CT scan on an 80-year-old lady who you're kind of a little bit worried about, but it's Friday afternoon. They get read normally on Tuesday morning because those are outpatient, non-urgent tests, but you get it read on Friday afternoon because the system has picked up the fact that she has a stroke and then she can still be managed in the emergency department while she's still in the therapeutic window and you can still intervene. So that's a really important, you know, kind of speed to treatment consideration. And then the third experience is just researcher experience. And this is more around cohort identification. So identifying the right patients that are eligible for a trial, de-identifying the record in an automated way and automatically recruiting patients based on what we know about them, even from their problems, medications, and so, but also their notes, and also anything that's in a PDF format. We have tools to go into that and basically digitize the patient and match it to a digital protocol to find out where there's a good match. And this is the major Achilles heel to any kind of research is identifying patients that would be a good match and then recruiting those patients into the trial. So now, because we have an electronic health record, we can actually put those in at the point of care because we're identifying which patients actually matter and ask them, do you want to be part of this trial or not? And leave it to the patient to decide. But those kinds of experiences, th those are all examples of technologies that can help the experience. Of course, there's a number of other things we can do to help the experience. And none of those things would work without, you know, the, the support functions, the, the financial health aspects and the data governance aspects and the infrastructure to help support it. Wow. I mean, it's remarkable that a number of those things were in year. I mean, really, really impressive and very complete, you know, and I know for academics, integrating those various researchers can be tricky. So yeah, kudos. Alistair, what would you say is one of the biggest challenges facing Emory Health today? So again, I don't think that we're unique, but we are an academic medical center and academic medical centers do have a particular challenge where we have to keep up the mission of training, you know, the next generation of doctors and nurses and public health folks. And we have to perform research, which is a money losing proposition most of the time. So somehow that mission has to be continued. Otherwise, we're going to run out of doctors and we won't have new discoveries. So I think that the, the major challenge, especially when the cost for finding a nurse in a nursing shortage and premium labor is, you know, kind of gone through the roof and the cost of supplies is extremely high as well and suffered with inflation. So even though the organization is making more revenue has grown compared to last year, the margins are very razor thin because of the increased 
cost basis of the organization. So right. that's probably one of the biggest challenges, shortage of workers, healthcare workers, and inflation associated with supplies. So the question is, all right, so what do we do about that? Well, there's a number of things we can do about it. Number one, in the Southeast, there tends to be a lot of fee-for-service. So one thing we could do is start moving and participating with the payers that have access to the insurance premium and partnering with them about what can we do to lower cost, overall cost, which oftentimes is otherwise sitting on the insurance company books. So if I have a patient that could go to the large academic center in town or an ambulatory surgical center next to it, both have similar outcomes. One's going to be much more expensive than the other. And the insurance company is interested in making sure you get the best outcome for the least number of dollars. And so in a value-based care world, you would decide a service that would not be the most expensive because you're motivated to make sure that you're keeping the cost down while still ex excelling in your outcomes. And so same thing for the medications you pick. There's some medications that are being selected today that are 10 times more expensive than another one, but there's no difference in outcome. And so we have to get smarter in what we pick. And we have to know where the cost drivers are in the system to figure out where the margins are, where it makes sense and where we should be doubling down because we do a good job. And that requires something called activity-based costing, which basically means based on your activities, your transactional systems, you can figure out what the cost drivers are and where the, where the margins are by patient, by doctor, by service line, you know, by hospital and so forth. And then, so that's the second thing uh, to make sure that we do. And I think the third thing is we're sitting on a mountain of data and, you know, to some degree, hospitals are data collection machines. And we have all kinds of means to protect that data. And we're very good at keeping that data private and making sure that we respect the data of our patients. At the same time, we can't just sit on it. We have to derive insights from it to be able to discover the next cure. We're doing some amazing things with Alzheimer's disease, as, as example from the brain health folks at Emory under Alan Levy. But it's just one example of many where we can use that data for good. We can use that data to figure out what's the next best thing to do for the patient. Sometimes there's only 10% of evidence-based medicine that we use at the point of care. 90% is by experience and other things. So we need to take advantage of practice-based evidence. The way that Chris Longhurst wrote about, you know, over a decade ago, where you're actually using the data that you have to be able to generate what's the best next thing for the patient. And then the fourth thing is we always have to constantly be innovating. And to your point about disruptive innovators, like we have to be thinking about how do we automate? How do we take advantage? How do we, you know, look at different systems? How do we collapse complexity? How do we take advantage of large language models to be able to improve the service that we deliver? Those things remain critical. 100%. Wow. I mean, Alistair, that was chock full of great information and insight. We're almost out of time. A couple of last questions. One would be with understanding that you don't have a crystal ball, where do you see the healthcare industry going in the future and or what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes? So the population isn't getting any younger. So we're going to have to get more savvy on the geriatric population and kind of a 
more frail population that will have a tendency to get hospitalized more. And our hospitals are already full. So we're going to have to get into the business of hospital at home, like some have. You know, I always laugh when people say that Atlanta is an underbedded city. Underbedded meaning there's not enough acute beds in the city to take care of patients. The estimate is that somewhere between 30 and 40% of patients that are admitted to the hospital could be a hospital at home patient. Well, very quickly, you no longer have an underbedded hospital if you can set up the logistics and the tiering system necessary to be able to actually take care of patients in their home. Oftentimes, they prefer that. Oftentimes, their outcomes are better. They don't get nosocomial infections. They don't get delirious because they're in unfamiliar surroundings. And we have a better idea of what the context of the home is because we're there. So I think we'll see more delivery of care in the home. I think we'll see more value-based care the way CMS has been trying to push the whole country towards with time. I think we'll see an older, sicker population that we'll have to deal with. I think we'll see some hospitals that can't do it because they don't have the tools, they don't have the expertise, they don't have the wherewithal, and they'll either be bought out or they'll close. And in fact, we recently had a closing in Atlanta, which is always a very sad thing when that happens. And I don't know that technology necessarily will be the answer. It constantly will be the enabler. But I think an automation will help, you know, remove the remedial work and reduce the labor dependency. But I still think that we just need to change. A hard thing to do is change the health literacy of patients so they can take care of their diabetic knee on their own, so they can take care of the high blood pressure on their own. You know, this idea of we don't want a sick care system, we want a health care system is true, but it's a very hard thing to do. And it kind of starts in elementary school and goes on for the rest of your life. But I think we're all fighting disease, but disease starts with what you eat and how active you are. I don't see McDonald's reducing their footprint anytime soon. And that means we'll be in business for forever. Right. Yeah, so true. But I do love that promise or, or desire to move to this personalized medicine where, you know, I was on the NASM TBI forum a, a few months back and just that continuity that you guys are working on right now with your CRM and everything, and then tailoring the messaging. Cause like, for example, for my health records, if my doc knows that I'm prone to heart disease, cause both my parents had a heart condition and, you know, I get an email from my healthcare provider that says you should get a screening because X, Y, Z. I'm that much more apt to open that and address that versus just getting a blanket email. It's like, come get a procedure, right? Anyway, so great stuff, Alice. Our last question is just, if you could go back five, 10, even 15 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Ooh, I think I would spend more time with the family. I have three kids that are 21, 20, and 18, but I put a lot of you know hours into work, including the weekends, and I think they could have benefited from me spending more time with them. Well, that's lovely. Well, never too late. Alistair, thank you so much for coming on today. It was an absolute pleasure having you. My pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. 
This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.